Hello, Liturgy Guide listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. Uh, but first, I want to remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in June. You can find out more information about that at www.btransfigured.com. Again, this is a study weekend on our campus where you get to have classes with Dennis and Chris and a bunch of our other LI faculty. And Dr. Michael Foley will be here to teach us how to drink liturgically, and then we're going to go actually drink liturgically, which is also amazing. So it's going to be a fun weekend. Again, if you want to register, go to www.btransfigured.com. We still have some group uh, rates available, so if you want to bring 10 or more people, give us a call at 847-837-4542. Karen will get you hooked up. Um, This week, we are talking about social justice in the liturgy. Don't turn off the podcast just yet. Um, This is actually an amazing episode, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Some of the things that Dennis and Chris talk about here just really blew my mind, and I never would have even thought about these things if it weren't for this discussion that we had. Um, There are some really deep implications um, in terms of the liturgy and how we're supposed to act upon leaving the Mass, and... um, that in turn rolls back into our next mass going experience. So there are some really great things discussed in this episode. So please give it a, a listen with open heart as well as open ears, obviously. So without further ado, episode 36 of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. All right, this is this is a DMAC episode, so Chris... Uh, you can take a nap. Yeah. No, Chris has actually taught this topic before. Uh, what topic? Wow, wicka, 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 wow. Is it a hot topic? Hot topic. <laughs> the liturgy as the basis of social regeneration by our friend Virgil Michael. Oh. Did you record that, or do I have to do that again? Well, you... Yeah, I mean, I got it. We're oh, on. you we're know on. what we're going to talk about, Jesse? Virgil... Wait... The genesis of regeneration. The liturgy, you've heard mm-hmm, of this. Mm-hmm, got it. Liturgy guys as the basis of social regeneration. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't I know. I mean, uh, liturgy <laughs> as the basis of social regeneration. Freudian slip right yes. there. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> now, many people talk about social justice in our time, but they didn't really talk about that in the early decades of the 20th century. It was more social reconstruction or social regeneration rather than justice, although justice would is implicit in that. Are these all relatively the same idea? Yeah, you know, sometimes justice gets wrapped up with a kind of um, me first Marxist notion of I demand my rights and you shake your fist and get what you need by violence and bring down the man and revolution and stuff like that. But that's not really what they were talking about. In fact, that was quite different from what they were talking about. So the, the article I want to use which Chris has used in class before. Is this correct? You're here, Chris? Mm-hmm. Chris is here, too. No, I'm here. Yeah. Um, it's by Virgil <laughs> Michael, you know, our, our early uh, writer in America of the liturgical movement, mm-hmm. a monk of St. John's Abbey in Collegeville. We did a whole episode on him. Yeah, season, we should do another one, one because I don't think we even really scratched the surface with him. Well, we're going to scratch, scratch it a little him. more. Oh, all right. I know you have that itch for hit there. What? Wow, <laughs> that's Chris's itchy beard right there. <laughs> Um, but, you know, remember, he started this journal called Orate Fratres, which means? Pray, brethren. Yes. 
And why would it then be you stand that? up? Wait, what? Why would it be called Arate Fratres? Because it's the imperative to pray. Yes. So and it's just, also a line in the liturgy. Right. It's the line in the liturgy. That is the imperative to pray. So the mm-hmm. priest turns around in, this is in the, you know, the preconciliar rite or what we call the extraordinary form and says, hey, people, I'm about to go into the presence of Almighty God in the Holy of Holies. Pray that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty that, Father. Even uh, before Vatican knew that was versus Popolum? Popolo? Well, he would turn around and say to them, Arate Fratres. Oh. And then, theoretically, he would wait till they answered, and then he would turn around and go. But what happened most of the time when he would go, Arate Fratres, and then he would turn around, and he didn't even finish the sentence. He was already facing the other direction. You see that still in some low masses. But the idea is that the, uh, no offense to anybody who loves the low mass, but you know what? There were some, have to cut that out there were sometimes some genuine problems with praxis. But the, the point is the theology is there that the priest is going to go into the presence of God and he needs the prayerful support of the people because together they offer this sacrifice. This is akin to the, the rabbi entering the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. Well, the high priest, yeah. Not the, the high rabbi priest. Okay, but, so high yeah. priest. But he would only do that on his own. But, in, but he would bring the he would bring the twelve the, tribes of Israel with him. Well, so to speak, as gems on his breastplate. Mm-hmm. They did, he didn't bring actual people with him. Only the high priest went into the holy of holies. Okay, only by himself and only once a year. But we go with the priest. Well, the point is, we've been grafted on or adopted into this mystical body, and so we are Christ, and we're All doing. Right. We laity are doing what Christ does, as well. So the priest. Nice. Remember, the priest is the head, and the people are the members. So the point of that is this, this is the context of Virgil Michael. So in his own journal that he started, Orate Fratris, mm-hmm. in uh, 1935, November 2nd, actually, if you're counting, it's volume nine, number 12. How, wait, how many volumes are there? Uh, it's still around. Many years. It's still in publication, but it's called Worship now. Does that volume go up to 11? Nailed it. It goes way beyond 11, in <laughs> fact. I told Chris I was going to try to drop as many Spinal Tap references <laughs> as possible. Turn it up to 11, <laughs> man. Yeah. Cool. Wow. So he gave this talk and it was published and it was called Liturgy as the Basis of Social Regeneration. So most people wouldn't think that would have anything to do with anything. You're going to march on Washington. You're going to have your speakers yelling and screaming the microphone in front of the Lincoln Memorial. And yeah, that's right. Take down the man and get this guy out of office, get this gal in office, whatever. And that's how, you know, social regeneration. What's the liturgy have to do with that? Yeah, that's what I say. What's the liturgy? The the million man march doesn't go to mass first or the whatever march doesn't go to mass first. Maybe the march for life does involve (laughs) liturgy. They go before and after. Um, But he sets up the problem by talking about some of the Pope's you know, just before his time, Pius the Tenth, Pius the Eleventh, they weren't the problem. They were the problem, but they had talked about the problem, including Leo the Thirteenth. And uh, he says this idea of social regeneration or social reconstruction presupposes the idea that he says something has gone awry with our present social order. And this is funny because we think we live in this time where the world has gone to H E double hockey sticks in a mm-hmm. handbasket. Can you say that? Yeah, we can. H-E double hockey sticks in a hand You basket. can say hell. This is a podcast involving the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church says there is a hell. Yes. Sorry, all you people with kids You should definitely there. spell yeah. out hand basket. Did you though, hear how I just said that? I said sorry <laughs> like I'm from the Midwest instead of sorry like I'm from New York. Anyway, he quotes Pius XI in the 1930s saying, Nowadays, more than once in the history of the church, we are confronted with a world that is in large measure, in large measure, has almost fallen into paganism. Whoa. In the 1930s, he's saying this. They were pretty bad in that decade. Well, there was some bad (laughs) stuff going on. I mean, if you looked around and saw what Hitler was doing, you'd say, well, how can someone, if someone's really infused with divine life, 
which you get primarily from the liturgy, you don't go out having genocides and having, you know, declaring war on your neighbors and all that kinds of stuff. So he says there's two kinds of isms. Maybe do you remember this, Chris? The two isms that Chris has slumped yes. over in his seat. <laughs> First he Sorry. coughs. First he slumps, then he coughs. Then he ends. One is uh, individualism. Individualism. And I suppose the other, the other is, is collectivism, then, of some kind. This relativism? Guy, this guy oh, is a collect- genius. Well, collectivism? Individualism. What is that? Like, so, like socialism. Yeah. Oh, okay. So they, did, you know, they called it collectivism at that time. But basically, he's saying if you're an individualist, then you don't care about your neighbor. right? Your number one thing is that you are interested in yourself, and you treat other people like they're your slaves or robots. Or oh, these are the complete ends of the spectrum. Yes. Was, okay, exactly. got it. And he says that the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, um, although it was supposed to be seeking out the, you know, the rights of man in this broader sense, was really came with this kind of social Darwinism. He doesn't use that word, but basically the people are out for themselves, that you let the kind of Darwinism happen. So the smartest, the richest, the meritocracy, they have the right to more because they're smarter and better. And uh, the poor people just have to deal with the fact that they're stuck at the bottom. So mm-hmm. I've been watching, you know, I, I don't make Downton Abbey references anymore because <laughs> I don't watch so much, but I have been watching Poldark, thanks to Father Dan Steele in what Washington did, wait, State. Wait, what is it? Poldark is another uh, PBS series. Is it a period It's a period piece. piece. Well? It's okay. set in late 18th century in England, and it's just when mining was discovered in England and the sort of industrial revolution was happening. So this guy owns a mine, and he treats all of his people who work in his mine fairly, but their competitor doesn't and so there he's always trying to put him out of business because he's his costs are higher because he takes care of his people and stuff so mm. this notion that the uh the poor just had stuck with their lot and in fact the poldark who's sort of the good guy wants to give out food to the, his workers because they can't eat and uh one of the people says if they can't feed they shouldn't breed oh i mean is that like a heartless thing it's like well too bad you're starving when you shouldn't be having babies. So it doesn't actually treat the person as a person with needs and, wow. and that kind of thing. So basically saying if individualism, individualism sees that people don't know that they have duties toward what he says their fellow men, but toward mm-hmm. their fellow people. And that basically the struggle for survival of the fittest is really, that's the basis of things. But it's not the Catholic view. Haven't talked about liturgy yet. Wait, what about collectivism? Collectivism is the other thing, right? And so he says that's the opposite, obviously, of individualism. And he says that's the undue stressing of the social nature of man, but it leads into a one-sided neglect of individual rights as a human person. So if you're just a cog in the wheel of communism, then you don't really matter, as long as the greater machine is operating. And so he says something almost inevitably happens in that situation in terms of the form of government, either if you guess what that is. Um, Chris, you were the one who taught this class. If individual rights are unimportant in relation to the, the good of the perceived mechanistic whole, then what kind of government tends to rise out of that? Totalitarianism? A totalitarian system, yes. right? You don't matter as long as the, mm. the Marxist experiment is going or the, the communist uh, revolution they has both, to go. They both end in totalitarianism? Is that what he says? Well, no, he talks about collectivism, particularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, individualism leads to a sort of disdain for the poor and mm-hmm. sort of breakup of society, which then itself will lead to this desire for collectivism or communism because the poor are saying, well, better to have something than nothing. And in both cases, what they wind up with is a totalitarian state or some kind of uh, tyranny. And he says, no accident that the totalitarian state of communism will naturally become atheist. How come? 
because then you have uh, you're talking about whatever is best for the entire group, and so that you never have that personal relationship with Christ. You never have a personal encounter, right? Because well, person, right, okay. God's yeah, going to get in your way of uh, how you're going to manage. Uh, the poor beneath you. So yeah, you're get rid of God, you're, right. and then your objectives then you change can, too. Yeah, yeah. Then you can do what you need to do. Yeah. What Is are your right? norms for justice, loving your neighbor, if there's no kind of authoritative, beyond you norm of God who says, mm-hmm. you know, don't covet your neighbor's goods or your neighbor's wife or whatever. And so he says, basically, with individualism, you don't take care of the poor. Society decays. With collectivism, totalitarianism uh, becomes the result, and then you wind up with a state-sponsored atheism. So of course. China hasn't gone communist at this point, but Russia has for sure. And uh, they see that's a a growing threat. And so he says, the answer to this is found in the liturgy. How come? How come? Ooh, ooh, I have an answer. Go ahead. Because this, uh, it promotes the good parts of the group mentality and also the good parts of the individual oh. mentality. And what so, do we put a name on that? So you have corporate worship. Corpus. So, so you have the, poris, the body of you have the body of Christ. Mm. We are the body of Christ collectively worship. But then at the same time you have that individual relationship with what's happening yes. on that altar yes. by putting yourself on there and bringing bringing you and your family and, and your mem- oh, go ahead. So well so it seems like the answer isn't uh, Probably first to go to the liturgy, the answer is next to go to the theology of the mystical body, which is in the liturgy where it it becomes uh, on full display and gets lived out. Right. He says you have to think of Christian moderation and universal charity. These are these two norms. So the moderation, as you said, Jesse, will will take into account that members of the body of Christ are still members. They're not absorbed into some collective ooze like a new age, you know, being lost in the cosmos. And at the same time, they're not alone. So a hand, you don't want to diminish the importance of your hand, but your hand isn't much good without the rest of you, right? If your brain can't govern your hand, you'll mm-hmm. never write a book or paint or your heart will pump blood through it. So all these things are interconnected. You don't lose handness by being part of your body. At the same time, your body uh, collects all of those things and organizes them and uh, arranges them. And so he says this uh, primary Christian spirit understands all of this. And, you know, we talk about Pius X talking about the Christian spirit. Um, what's the quote there? that the true Christian spirit may flourish again. From uh, Trale Solicitudine? From Trale Solicitudine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the, the, the liturgy is the indispensable source from which the Christian people derive the true Christian spirit. Nailed yes. it again, Chris. But Unintentionally uh, direct quote, word for word. <laughs> <laughs> These are other similar words. Uh-huh. But he, what I didn't realize until I read this article is he quotes Leo Thirteenth, who says, if we examine all these matters, you know, we're talking about social renewal, he says, uh, this social reconstruction must be preceded by a profound renewal of the Christian spirit and from which people have unhappily departed. So Pius Leo XIII says, we need this Christian spirit. Then Pius X succeeds him and says, we have to restore the world in this new Christian spirit, and this comes from the liturgy. So it's actually a multi-pope idea, not just Pius X. Ooh, multi-pope. Well, it's even uh, is it Benedict XV after Pius X? I think so. Okay. Yeah, and he's the, is he the Pope of Catholic action? Pope of World War I, uh, I think so. Yeah, see, it's those two, especially uh, Leo Thirteenth as well, but, you know, Benedict XV will talk about Catholic action going out and restoring the world, but it's, uh, I think he says at the end of this article that it's, it's <laughs> no coincidence. It was necessary that Pius X had to come first, 
uh, to, to tell people where they get the true Christian spirit so that they can go out into the world. But yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a common thread uh, between all of these popes uh, working together about you know, how to get the world back in shape. I know. Nobody ever thinks about Benedict XV, but he was really part of this whole span from Leo XIII, Pius mm-hmm. X, Pius XI, Benedict XV, Pius XII. Well, and if, uh, why do you think this article is, this is not just a, a history piece. Can you think of two other popes? Maybe one is really liturgically minded, and then there's Benedict another pope the who's 16, really Benedict uh, kind of and yeah, John Paul. This, to the this margins. Rem- this reminds well, me. Well, and Pope Francis. Yeah, this reminds me of a, oh, yeah. of a meme I saw, and it was, um, it was, uh, JP2, Benedict the Sixteenth, and Pope Francis. And under JP2, it said, this is what we believe. And under Benedict, it said, this is why we believe it. And then under Pope Francis said, now go do it. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of that mentality of, you know, the different charisms that span across one papacy. But it sounds like it's similar between Benedict XV so. and, and Pius X. Yeah, I, I think so as well. And, you know, there is a kind of a divide, a perceived divide now between social justice people and liturgy people. And on mm-hmm. one side, they just want incense investments. The other side is going to go work with the poor. Well, that's a big divide it, just in culture and in the church, too, obviously. But where <clears throat> where you have, uh, you, you have to have care for others as the premium place in your mind and in your heart. And if you don't have care for others, then you can't do anything else. And then you have the other you know, group of people that is like, well, it's prayer and worship is first. And if you don't do that, then, then nothing else is, is really as important. So you have to start with and your the mystical body brings all of this together, correct? Right? Because the mystical body takes care of itself and its members, but it also then gathers all those members, assembles them to worship God as Christ. So these it's, two go together. Yeah. They mutually enrich each other. So the more you do one, the better you can do the other and vice versa. Right. And so Virgil Michael says, if you think about baptism, for instance, it's not just an individual who's now freed from original sin and all alone, but is incorporated into the mystical body and becomes united with Christ and all the other members of this baptismal um, community. And he calls it an organic fellowship, which has full respect for human personality and individual responsibility, right? You get to be you even when you're baptized and take care of yourself and do all your things, but you're also members of the mystical body of Christ. And he does some interesting things too, because he talks about the um, communion of the saints. How would that have anything to do with social regeneration? A bunch of saints in heaven. Oh, because uh, in order to, to better us as as a whole, you can rely on the aid or the help of others, which is what the communion the communion of saints does. So we we ask them to intercede for us, so that they can then help us reach to the to where they are in heaven. Wow, Jesse is becoming a super duper liturgical <laughs> theologian, right? So he says we need to be here. Anyway. This um, mystical body, yes, 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 you do. I yeah, please. It's not just between members on earth, but it's actually between the members of earth and heaven. So if there's, like a, 4D. if there's a divide between earth and heaven, then even that is bridged. So he talks about the merits of Christ, which were gathered up by the saints and, um, you know, the martyrs and so on, that there's this treasury in heaven. He calls it a common treasury of graces and merits, which are then applied to the members according to their needs. So some of them are on earth, right? Some of them are in purgatory. And so in that sense, there's this cosmic unity as well as an earthly unity. Um, and he talks about putting this into practice in the Mass. I mean, okay, so there's graces flowing around by the Eucharist, whatever. How about the actual doing of the rites? If you're sitting there doing the rosary during Mass, how much corporate work are you doing? Well, that's the individualism right there. That's focusing on your own devotion at that, at that point. Right, which is an individual kind of prayer, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. However, 
if you're singing together with someone on your left and your right, and you're listening to a lector, and then you are going up together with your spouse and your kids for communion, you're kneeling next to them or standing behind them when you receive communion, this is a corporate act, and you learn how to do the things you don't want to do, like get up in the morning, get dressed, go there, and to do the things that you want to do <laughs> with other people. And so it's almost like uh, practicing plays on a basketball team or something. You know, every, every really good basketball player wants to hot shot, hot rod, hot, there's a word I can't Hot think. dog? Hot dog, yeah, that's it, thank you. <laughs> hot oh, dog, I, yeah. I, I thought you were trying to say pop a shot, which is that little game that you, it's like an arcade where you try and shoot as many baskets. That is not ball. what I was okay. saying. No, but, I, that's uh, why I was confused. But you know, if you're really good at free throws, you don't want to like pass the ball to somebody else. You want to go do your three, or your dunks or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. But if you have to learn to work as a corporate body in the basketball team, and uh, so at the, at the mystical level, then you, you actually practice the art of working together, living together, praying together, being the body of Christ in the actual rites of the mass itself, which is why sitting around doing the rosary, as good as the rosary is, is not the same thing as the corporate act of worship. Well, that's why the worship and liturgy is the antidote to uh, rabbit individualism and uh, uh, the, the collectivism where the right. individual is, is uh, uh, absorbed. So when you go to the liturgy, you learn both of these dimensions, how to become an, uh, an individual remade in the, after the image of Christ, but that is never separated from the other individuals that you're with. So you learn the correctives for both of these extremes when you go to the liturgy because your, your place in the mystical body is really yes. coming to life. I can be a cantor and a member of the mystical body. I can be a lector and a member of the mystical body. I can be a quiet person on my knees after communion and be a member of the mystical body. When the priest says, let us pray, I can bring my particular intentions that nobody else in that whole church has, but then they're collected and gathered along with everybody else's. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the right formation in individuality and uh, corporate life. Exactly. So he says, if you receive communion and 20 people receive communion, he says, it's not just 20 individuals getting holier. It's 20 people who've been bound together and grafted more firmly into the mystical body, into one body. And so it's not a me and Jesus. It's all of us as Jesus <laughs> corporately mm -hmm. worshiping. He mentions, too, that no mass is said without commemoration of the souls in purgatory, right? So they're part of that mystical body. He even says confession is uh, an instance of not just dealing with the individual, which you think might be one of the more individual Yeah, that's uh, what I would things. think. But he, he quotes the older form of the, the rite, and he says, um, the priest would say to the people, may the, may the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, the merits of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and all the saints, whatever good thou mayest do, and so on, uh, have endure profit unto thee as a remission of sins, increase in grace and the glory of life. So the merits oh, of the wow. saints are praying for you that you might... Uh, have this transformation in um, in life and action. So finally, he ends up with this mystical body, and he says there's a link between liturgy and sociology. That's a study of how people interact. And through the liturgy, they learn that the actions of their neighbors matter. Right? When you sing next to someone, when you listen to someone, he calls it a visible manifestation of incorporation into Christ. And that uh, if they do this, they cannot fail to revive and foster a determination to carry their Christ life, that's grace, into the social and economic sphere. So you practice basketball enough, you're just a basketball player wherever you go. You practice Christ life and receive Christ life enough, you're Christ uh, for the world. And the liturgy is where that happens. Now you, Chris, remember, mm -hmm. you were one of our episodes, you were talking about this syllogism. Yeah, this is it. Why is the liturgy indispensable? 
Pius X tells us that the liturgy is the indispensable source of the true Christian spirit. Wait, are you just quoting this? I'm off? quoting. Oh. I, I, I think it goes something. <laughs> you don't sound like, like you're reading at all. <laughs> Pius XI says that the true Christian spirit is the indispensable source for social justice. Hence the conclusion, Jesse, the liturgy is the indispensable basis of Christian social regeneration. You put my name in there? That's awesome. So <laughs> if you are a social justice warrior and you want to go take care of the, tear the take care of the poor, God bless you. Lead them to prayer. Go and to begin, prayer yourself. And begin with prayer. And no, don't just give them a sandwich and a coat. Give them the face of Christ. And they say, ah, oh, this person isn't just a social worker throwing food at me. This is a person who loves me. That's a totally different thing than just giving people uh, food. Mm -hmm. It's good for you, good for them, incorporates everybody in the mystical body and bridges the gap between liturgy and social justice. And if you're a liturgy guy, I suppose the flip side is, uh, it's not simply about uh, what happens uh, in the bookends between uh, the ritual when liturgy it uh, starts guy, and ends. Like us, you mean? Or? Well, oh, a, liturgy, mean, yeah. a liturgy person. A liturgiologist, you mean? It's got to uh, overflow out into the church. Otherwise, uh, uh, you're not living the full picture. Right. If you're really obsessed with the right smell of incense and the right cut of vestments and you don't care about the poor, something is wrong. And if you care about the poor but don't have a hunger for the Eucharist, something is wrong. The two should go together. Um, I heard that Virgil Michael uh, may have been influenced in some of this, this writing here from Dorothy Day. Well, they were around kind of at the same time. Mm -hmm. I, did, did they, they had encounters where they would meet up and talk about some of this stuff? Yeah, I think they, they all knew each other. These okay. kind of early folks knew each other. Of course, Virgil Michael died in... Uh, what, 42 or something? He died young. He was, only, oh, he was 42 years old, but he died right. in the third, not too long after this, probably. And she lived until the 1980, I think. So she had a long life after him. Dorothy Day, you know, if people don't know, was um, a woman who was a communist, and she had a conversion, and she thought that the communists were actually offering people something that the church wasn't, which was food, job, security, <laughs> labor, and that the, if the church was taking care of the poor, people wouldn't be likely to become communists. So they're very much on the same page, and she was also convinced that the liturgy should be part of serving the poor. In fact, she tells a story that she would bring the homeless people in to sing um, Compline at night. She wouldn't give them a meal until they sang Compline in huh. Latin. In Latin. <laughs> so you imagine like getting 10 homeless folks off the street and say, here's a Latin prayer book. You don't eat until you do this. I'm going to make Agnes do that before she eats dinner. <laughs> she said it wasn't pretty. It didn't sound pretty, but it was what she insisted. It was beautiful. That those two went together, yeah. And we don't necessarily recommend that, but... And you know what? One last thing. Yeah. I know you, you're giving an eye of the clock here. Guess who was the very first laywoman ever to speak to seminarians at a Catholic seminary? Dorothy Day? Dorothy Day. And guess what seminary it was? Mundelein Seminary. Mundelein Seminary. Whoa. Right, right here in this place. It's literally where we are sitting. Father uh -huh. Reynold Hillenbrand, who is the rector here mm -hmm. and also a friend of Virgil Michael. So it's a, it's a small world. Wow. So uh, basically, you should go to the Liturgical Institute because great things have happened on this campus. There you go. And we actually had a... a the Liturgical Institute is the basis for social <laughs> regeneration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was two summers ago, we went up to the uh, soup kitchen in uh, Waukegan somewhere. And, you know, here we are singing Latin chant. And then we all finished Mass and went up and fed the poor. We should do more of that. But it was a really nice, uh, nice night. All right. Uh, <clears throat> man, sorry. You're getting Christians. You couldn't wait yeah, one gotta, more minute for I that, gotta, could you? Get a case of the Kirstens. Uh, <laughs> we, should, <laughs> we should answer uh, a liturgy question. All right. Yes. Do so you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here, but you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? 
Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Oh, we have a question. This, uh, this came in on Twitter. What is a Twitter? Twitter. <laughs> Again, Chris, you are hopeless at this point. Get your flip phone and look for it. <laughs> this is from, I'm not joking about this, Pontiflent Maximus. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Pontiflent <laughs> says, my wife wants to veil at Mass, and I want to receive Holy Eucharist on the tongue, kneeling. But we also don't want to stick out like sore thumbs in what is supposed to be a communal worship. Thoughts slash advice. Hmm. This is a unity in worship. It all depends on which parish you're going to. Because you could go to some parishes and not have a veil and receive in the hand, in which case you would stick out like a sore thumb. Right. So I I suppose the context is everything. Um, Have you ever had a sore thumb, Chris? I think so. Yeah, it sticks yeah. out. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I, I, I would like to add to this, too, because now that I've you know been uh, ingrained with uh, the knowledge of all the stuff from the Liturgical Institute, there are certain things that I know, too. And, for example, the, the part of the Mass where the priest says, pray, brothers, uh, you're supposed to wait till the end of that, then stand, but most people don't do that. So by me not standing at that moment, am I sticking out? Or Now that's not like me standing up and everybody else is still sitting, so it's not as noticeable. But I think these, are, these unity and worship questions are fairly important. It's hard to be among the liturgical intelligentsia, Jesse, isn't it? It is. You <laughs> guys have all these ruined me. Not all that it cracks up to be. Mm-hmm. So wearing a veil is probably fairly easy. I mean, you might be looked at, why, why is she wearing a veil? But it's not going to disrupt anybody's experience of Mass. And kneeling... Might be a little more disruptive, but then you just have to be prudent. You go at the end, or you ask the priest ahead of time, or somehow you make it work in a way that doesn't disrupt things. But the question is, if that's the norm, the local custom, should you just do what they do, or should you have your specific pietistic custom first? Well, it's not the type of answer you can look up in the germ or in a particular book, as far as I can tell. It's this uh, kind of prudent application of the principles of you retain your individual... um, being your person, but you are now engaged with the larger, uh, larger body. So you don't cease being your individual self, but you are now uh, cooperating with the larger mystical body. And what are the degrees that that can happen? You know, you might um, let me say this. You know, it used to be that the general instruction was much more clear about when you receive communion. Uh, the posture in the Diocese of the United States is standing, but those who kneel should not be refused communion, but it should be explained to them the reasons for why we stand. Sent that's, to the indoctrination camp after Mass. Well, that, yeah. that's how the general instruction of the Roman Missal read. After Sacramentum Caritatis, it said, the posture for receiving Holy Communion is standing unless a member of the faithful wants to kneel, period. You see the, the difference? Mm-hmm. And so this at least 
You know, at that time is kind of how the church sees the relationship between kind of the, the unity and beauty that's displayed by the, the mystical body acting together and the legitimate diversity of her individual members. And I suppose the needle moves from time to time, depending who's thinking about it and writing about it, but it's not a clear answer. And people who are of a certain age probably remember anything before Vatican II, whatever, is associated with mean nuns and mean priests and hell and trauma, right? So, oh, these young kids don't know what it was like back in the 50s when, you know, there was no mercy in God and everything was sin. And so sometimes, sometimes there's emotional reactions to think that someone who's 20 has no context of that context anyway, and they just want to do what's pious and right, and as their heart moves them. I used to be big on kneeling for communion, even if it was in a Novosorto Mass, and as time went on, I was just like, okay, you know, I can, I can be devoutly receiving communion without being individualistic or singular in that sense. So sometimes you go through phases of fervor that pass. You know? mm-hmm. I think what you guys say about being prudent is, is important. I, you know, if I were to speak candidly, I, I think there's a certain amount of reverence in you know, kneeling and receiving communion while, while kneeling, and I think that it's, it's a beautiful experience. But if, if that's what the liturgy is, the, the culture of the liturgy, if I'm at a mass, where that's what people are doing and they're receiving it on a rail and kneeling or that's what everybody's doing, I feel more comfortable doing it. But if I'm in a mass where everybody is standing and receiving the Eucharist, then that's what I usually do. So I think there's, there is prudence there, but there's also that individual um, understanding of, of what you're doing. Exactly. <laughs> well said. <laughs> All right, if you want to email us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.